Okay. Well, this is, um, as I said, part three of David, and we're basically going to finish with David today. There's so much of David um, in this narrative, it's a little difficult, um, but next week we're going to be on to Solomon. So we've talked a lot about David so far, David, um, his anointing, David, his history, David's ascension, um, David and Saul. Um, but now that Saul is out of the way, we have a little bit of time to really think about David, David in, in him, David in himself, David is king. And we're going to kind of look at David today, um, in his role as king, his role as a father, some other things as well. But I'm going to read just a little bit here and then I've got some questions and we'll kind of get started. And we're starting in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Um, to portray the biblical King David, we sort of have to reconcile two images that, that we get when we read through the narrative of the man. We have a lot of information on him. Um, and I'll, I'll just read here. On the one hand, we have David. He's the youngest, bro, um, the youngest son of Jesse. He's a shepherd boy in his youth. He's a musician. It's recorded he had beautiful eyes, he was handsome in appearance, he had a very heartfelt friendship with Jonathan, and that he spares Saul's life on at least two occasions. Conversely, David is a man capable of significant physicality and of even physical violence. He has killed lions, bears, a giant, he beheaded Goliath and killed him with two armies watching. And for the Philistines, who are one of Israel's oldest and most dangerous enemies, David is a walking nightmare. Aside from killing Goliath and becoming the most lethal Israelite leader they've ever faced, it probably is not lost on them that he killed and collected the foreskins from 200 Philistines just to pay the bride price. And if you guys remember back, Saul only asked for 100. He asked for 100 because he thought it was a ridiculous number that would probably get David killed. And David, as though to prove it were no big deal, as though he were making a point, took twice as many as the very high number that Saul had asked for. So, and David is a man so fearless, as we talked about last week, that after... He takes, the dead Goliath, he takes the dead Goliath's sword. He journeys to Gath, which is Goliath's hometown. So we have these two pictures. Um, I think that it is, when, when we think about like David, the good-looking musician, the young shepherd boy, youngest son, it says youngest, not smallest. We have to also picture a man who was mighty in battle, who the Philistines were scared of, who wielded Goliath's sword. Goliath was a big guy. David could wield his sword, or at least did so for a time, and beheaded him with his own sword. So, so I think it, David, although we're not told he was tall like Saul was, I think to say he fit, had a, a physically imposing presence would be absolutely correct. Um, the second question we're going to have to kind of tackle with David deals with David's heart. Um, when, when people think about David, one of the phrases that most often comes to mind is, from 1 Samuel 13, 14, a man after God's own heart. We attribute to him the authorship of at least 73 of the Psalms. 
David, we also know, wants to build a permanent house for the Lord to replace the tent, the tabernacle. And when we think about these, he, he seems like a, um, a, a godly, moderate, loving, pious man. But we also know that David is a king who murders a soldier under his own authority to conceal adultery and to take that man's wife. And David, when he asks of the Lord about building a house for God, he is told by God in First Chronicles 22.8, you shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. So I just, I want to be fair to the character of David because as, as we're doing David versus Saul, David always comes out as the one who is being reasonable and who's being godly, who's being who's trying to de-escalate the situation, whereas it seems like Saul, you know, Saul who's so unstable and, and, and being so consumed by his sin, but I just want us to, to, to give a fair picture of David on both sides. And before we dig a little deeper here, um, I was just going to ask you guys, this is, it's kind of a complex picture, because on the one hand, we have this like physically imposing man of war who's killed a lot of people, we have this, this king who, 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 who conquers, this king who kills a soldier because he wants something that he has. But on the other hand, you know, this, this man of God. And I wanted to ask you guys, before we dig a little deeper, how do you picture David when you think about him? Do you picture like David, like, because when they draw like pictures of him, David is smaller, Goliath is bigger, David has his sling, you know, and or, or do you picture like David and Bathsheba, Lee? Well, I think of, there's a famous statue of him, and he's uh, holding the head of Goliath, I think. And uh, he just looks like he just killed a guy, and he's holding his head, and he looks pretty happy about yeah. it. Or he's he's you know standing. I don't know how it doesn't indicate how tall he is, I guess, but mm -hmm. I don't think of him. It, I think we all do kind of think of him as being little, as mm -hmm. because he was the youngest. But the youngest, there but it doesn't be any say smallest, right? Yeah. right. So I, I agree. I, I think that it just—it's kind of how we're introduced to David, you know. But I think that, like, when we read a little deeper, it would just be like, this is a guy that very scary men were afraid of. So it's like we just have to do justice to the text and get both of those sides in there. Anyone else have any thoughts about how you like picture David in your mind? Does anyone picture him as like the king who takes away something from one of his soldiers and kills him, the adulterer, that sort of thing? No? And not many people probably think of him as basically a, a monster to the Philistines. Like the Philistines just like, David, we don't want anything to do with that guy. You know, he killed our greatest champion, you know, cut his head off. He walks around in our land amongst us, you know. So it's it just, I just thought that was worth talking about because it's something you don't hear about as much. Yes. Mike. Thanks, Mitchell. I guess I do think of him as the uh, adulterer. Uh, when I hear the name David, mm -hmm. I think of the man that 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 uh, killed Uriah mm -hmm. and as somebody who had nothing but a wife. Yes. And took it from her, mm -hmm. from him. Yes. I can't fathom fighting Goliath, I can fathom an, another man and his wife. Oh. Uh, and so th that is what I think of. But I guess I also tend to think of him as smallish, 
mm-hmm. uh, when it, just a, in appearance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people do connect David with his most infamous sin, um, but it just the man had many sides, and I think that's just, just fair to say. Um, so we'll pick up the narrative here at the beginning of 2 Samuel. If there was anything else? Oh, yes. I was just going to say that with David, without David, we wouldn't have a lot of the Psalms that we have. Yes. And so for myself, I know mm-hmm. just David is a man after God's own heart mm-hmm. and all the different ways that he screwed up. It's yes. almost like a hopefulness for us that, yes. you know, truly if you seek God, even when you screw up, I mean, if you've mm-hmm. that whole heart, I think we just recently listened to a message and it was um, talking about the child that died and just... Mm-hmm for seven days, how David just pleaded with God, but, mm-hmm. you know, then he got his answer. But, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, and we'll contrast that some later about how we have David's sin and we have Saul's sin. They're both king over Israel and they end up in totally different places. Um, and we think of them differently. So, yeah, that's a good point. So, uh, moving right in here on Second uh, Samuel, um, trying to move quickly here. A story maybe not everyone's familiar with. Um, everyone remembers how careful David was not to raise a hand against God's anointed, about how he would not touch Saul. And Saul ultimately falls on his own sword to avoid being captured in battle because one thing we know about Saul was that he had, did not want to be humiliated in front of the people. But sort of an, uh, an interesting story, there's um, the death of Saul and Jonathan is brought to David by an Amalekite man who lies and takes credit for killing Saul. Now, why would he do that? Well, we assume it's because he was trying to curry favor with the new king. It's like, hey, new guy, I got the old guy out of the way for you. What do you think about that? You know, maybe you have something nice for me for doing this. And David said to him, this is 1 Samuel, 14, uh, 1 Samuel 1, 14. David said to him, how is it... You were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David was not a man who stayed his hand when he was sure about something. We know that. And it was just kind of interesting that this (laughs) this man came to him, tried to take credit for it, and David's like, You killed him? Execute him. It's not true. The man lied, but it, being caught up in his own lie, he ended up dying. And we find that, you know, David, David took such things very seriously even after Saul was gone and his friend Jonathan. So um, David <clears throat> travels. Now, now David has a group of men that are traveling with him to Hebron. And David is anointed but there by the men of Judah as king over their people. And we can see David beginning to consolidate his power over Israel. We might think that now that Saul is dead, David's journey to the throne is over and that it's all his, but it's not. Um, Abner, the commander of Saul's army, makes a power play and he names Saul's surviving son, Ish-bosheth, king over the rest of Israel. Well, that was probably a real setback for David. We think, well, now that Saul's done, I'm anointed, it's going to be me. No, no. Um, now there's another descendant of Saul on the throne, and um, now we see a, a fight between them, and David and Abner's forces meet in the Battle of Gibeon, and they 
war comes out of that. David's side continues growing stronger and stronger. And then um, in an interesting, there's an interesting altercation between Abner, the commander of Saul's army, and Ishbosheth over a woman, of all things. You can read that if you want to. Um, and Abner's not happy with how he's being treated. He's basically saying, well, I'm still out there fighting the fight, fighting for your house. Um, but he's so angry about it, he switched over to uh, David's side. It is interesting to note, and this is in 2 Samuel 3, that Abner was aware that God had promised to make David king. So for what that's worth, maybe part of the reason he, you know, he knew that, the, that David was going to be, you know, had been made king by God, um, but he switched sides and turns out to be a very helpful ally for David, even to the point that he helps, um, um, he helps to convince a lot of the um, remaining elders in Israel that David's the new guy. <clears throat> and that David should be their king. And after only two years of reign, Ishbosheth is slain in his bed by two of his captains. The captains behead him and they take the head to David at Hebron. So, this time, these two captains sort of betray their leader, Saul's son, and they bring David the head, hoping for a reward. Hey, you're going to be the new king. This is the head of Saul's son. What, you know, what do you think about that, David? David, as we've seen before, thinks very little about that. Um, and David reminds them of the first story I read you guys. Hey, have you heard about the guy who came before me and took credit for killing Saul? You remember what happened to him? Do you really think this was a good idea? It was not. The captains are killed and cut into pieces at David's command, and he buries the head of Saul's son. So now we've finally gotten the last little remnant that's in David's way out of the way. Remember, Abner, the captain of Saul's army, switches sides. He's now helping David. David's been growing stronger. And now all the remaining tribes come to David, make a covenant with him to anoint him the king. He's now going to be king over all Israel. He's already been reigning over the tribe of Judah for seven and a half years, and he will now reign as king over all the Israelites for another 33 years. Um, it'll be a time of military conquest and prosperity for Israel. Um, the, the territory they control will greatly expand. A lot of their enemies will be defeated. Um, also importantly, David moves to Jerusalem and cap captures the city from the Jebusites. We think about Jerusalem being such an important city. Um, this is when David moves in, takes up residence there, calls it the city of David, and forevermore it will be an incredibly important Jewish city. And with God's favor, David continues to grow in power. Okay, that was a lot of text there, but I just wanted to get through it to kind of let you guys see what happened between Saul exiting and David finally being king over all Israel. Acknowledged by all Israel, no more major contenders for the throne. Um, and now we get to see a picture of David as the king. And he moves the ark to Jerusalem. That's a long story. If you care to read it, um, there are interesting details in there. We get to meet a new character. David 
talks to the prophet Nathan. So we have a new prophet on the scene now. We don't know as much about Nathan's past as we did about Samuel, but Nathan is now the man who's speaking for God in Israel. And Nathan wants to build a house for the ark of the Lord, but the Lord reveals to Nathan that instead the Lord will establish David's house forever and then use David's offspring to build a house for God. This is the Davidic covenant with which many of you are very familiar. But just in case, um, this is a very obviously a very big deal. How did God establish David's house forever? This might sound elementary, but I want to make sure we're clear on that. When God said, I will establish your house forever, what did he mean? Because David's not going to live forever, you know, and his lineage, you know, will not... We'll, we'll see what happens to some of his sons. What does he mean? This is the Davidic covenant. Established forever. You want to know what he meant? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I, I believe that is. I believe that is the case. Um, when we talk about establishing David's house forever, we have to think about a king from the line of David who will reign forever. And as New Testament Christians, we recognize a king from the line of David who will reign forever. Um, but it, it is a huge... When you think about we're in the Old Testament now, but we are pointing directly ahead to the New Testament, to Christ, and to these other things, it just has incredible significance for us. And I just wanted to make sure that, that we connect the dots there. Um, and again, just moving on for the sake of time... The next phase in David's life is um, a progress is a process of going through and defeating a lot of Israel's enemies. He has enormous military success. Um, he drives them back. The kingdom is enlarged. It's not just one enemy; it's multiple enemies. And David and his mighty men—you can read about them in First Chronicles as well—they're um, more than a match for their enemies. And also, um, we see a kind side of David. Um, remember Jonathan, who he was so fond of. Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth, is allowed to um, eat at David's own table. He treats him almost like one of his own sons. Um, and Mephibosheth will come up again in the story later. So I just wanted to uh, point that out. Because from this period of great military success, we move into David's great sin. During, and it says in the text, this is in 2 Samuel 11, during the time, during the springtime, when in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, that's another name you might want to remember, who was the commander of his army, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Why is David at home right now? He is nothing if not a military leader, and he has conquered many peoples. Why is David at home? You guys think. Why is he not at the head of his army doing, you might say, what David does best? What's he doing? Is he bored? Is he lazy? Is he just tired? Has he gotten tired of doing what it's his job to do? Maybe. But for whatever reason, he's not out doing what it's expected that a king is doing. He's at home in his house 
Maybe he felt that he had reached a period of safety with all of Israel's enemies on the retreat, all other major obstacles, threats to the throne dealt with. But ironically, this is when he becomes most vulnerable. And David spots a woman bathing. You all know the story, Bathsheba. Quickly progresses from lust to adultery to murder, killing Uriah the Hittite, or having him killed, and taking the pregnant Bathsheba into his own house. Interesting to note, 2 Samuel 5.13, David had been steadily increasing his number of wives and concubines since he became the king. We talked about one of his first wives, but by now, being the wife or concubine of David is not an exclusive club. So I think I, that's an important point to make as well, because I think Greg brought it up earlier. We talk about one man who had many wives and many female companions, and then you have a loyal, faithful soldier who had a wife, but the king wanted her. And because he was the king, he was able to make that happen. Um, and the prophet Nathan appears before David and he indicts the king through sort of a parable. It's very interesting. He tells the story and uh, David is actually angry at the, the character in the story who would dare to take something when he already has so much from someone who does, has very little. And then, of course, as you guys know, uh, Nathan says, it's you. And then Nathan pronounces judgment from the Lord over David's sin. And the judgments that are pronounced are these. The sword will not depart from David's house. God will raise up evil against David from within his own household. David's wives will be given to another to defile in broad daylight. And the male child Bathsheba is born to David will die. So it's ironic that very quickly we go from David securing his hold on power and finally, you know, it, it is the safest David's been in a long time. He's been running through the desert, fighting, dodging Saul. He's been fighting his way up. He's been fighting for the Israelites to accept him as king. And now that he is king, we fall in this moment. And David falls into gross sin, the sin he's most famous for. David seeks God, fasting and lying on the ground. And the child dies. This is the beginning of the judgment we'll see. And Bathsheba again conceives, and she, bears, and she gives birth to another boy. And David names him Solomon. I put that in there because we will definitely talk more about Solomon. And here, um, Marion, this was uh, close to what you were mentioning earlier. This is such an egregious sin. So why did David's sin not ultimately separate him from God the way Saul's did? Because you could argue Saul incompletely fulfilled what God told him to do. David murdered a guy and took his wife. I mean, we have to allow ourselves to think like, well, why didn't David end up where Saul did? I have some thoughts, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Al, because it's a big question about David. I'm sure there's a lot of differences, but the, the main difference uh, throughout David's life, and, uh, and this one is no different, when he is confronted with his sin, he fully repents. He fully grasps the 
gravity of it. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't say, well, yeah, but, you know, they did this and they did that, so I did this. No, he says, it's me, and I have sinned against the Lord, and he repents. And I think that's that's the pattern of David's life, even though he had some terrible, egregious sins. Mm-hmm. His heart, um, when pointed out, was always brought back, and he repented. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's true. I, I think that his repentance is, is different from Saul's attempt at repentance. Remember Saul, okay, fine, I've sinned, but please still honor me in front of the people. You know, I'm really concerned about how everyone sees me as king, Samuel. Whereas whereas David, it's a more complete, a, a real repentance. And maybe that's one of the reasons it, we have this unique insight into David's inner struggle because of those Psalms because of those psalms that show a man, you know, struggling with sin, repenting from sin, and um, trying to turn from sin. Um, but yeah, I think the repentance is incredibly important and the difference there. Any other thoughts? Why did David and Saul not end up the same? Anything else? Yes, Greg. We know from the text that David had a heart that he was attempting to please God. He was a person after God's own heart. Mm-hmm. And we, we see that from the text, and we see that multiple times. Uh, we never see anything like that from Saul or about Saul. Saul is more prone to exalt himself uh, and use God as a prop. Um, um, they didn't. He didn't do what Samuel said. He, you know, he was all doing things his way, whereas David did seem to be doing things. Uh, he failed in, in several instances, but he, he, he is said to be a man trying to do things God, God's way. You know, it's not for nothing that we see here that when David stopped doing what God wanted him to do, which was to be out ridding Israel of his enemies, that's when he was able to focus on, that's when sin entered his life more more easily he started taking other wives he then ended ended up taking Bathsheba and killing Uriah uh, yeah. to get her and and all that grievous uh, episode I, I like the way you put I like the way you put you used God um, Saul used God like a prop right that Saul never really seemed to be genuinely concerned about what God thought of him and 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 only at times of greatest need or when he was trying to get out from underneath some burden would he would he approach God whereas David Saul was really concerned about his own desires and what people thought of him and and I think I agree that the picture of what we have of David is that David although he had certainly moments of terrible sin at his core was very concerned about what God wanted and and we see that many times for many times that he would seek God and pray to God, be like, God, what do you want me to do? And, and, and his repentance was different. And it's just both, both kings of Israel, both caught in major sin, both um, of them had a prophet come to them and tell them, what have you done? But just from there, everything after that was very different. And I just wanted to take a moment and, and think about that and process that a little bit because Jake. we remember them differently. Jake. Yes. I think one th- one thing, th- this is a very encouraging thing, or ought to be, to us. Uh, David's flawed. We're flawed. Uh, it, it's easy, uh, I think Satan uses guilt uh, to, 
to stifle us. Uh, guilt, some guilt is of course appropriate, but I think Satan uses guilt as a hammer to try to stop us from doing things, to, to think that we're useless. Mm -hmm. But here we see David, I mean, I doubt any of us in here have had somebody killed in order to accomplish something that we wanted. Mm -hmm. And yet David, even after that, was God's, was uh, uh, exalted by God. And so we, uh, even though we may fail uh, in, in sin from time to time, needn't think that we should take ourselves out of the, out of the uh, right. the job of right. reaching others for Christ, mm -hmm. I I think that's true because um, God didn't tell David stop being king, and David did not stop being king. He kept you know doing it. He kept performing those duties after after repenting of the sin. So I think that is encouraging for us who are less than perfect um, that God offers repentance and that there's still work for us to do. Um, but anyway. I, I wanted to stop for a second and look at that. And now that we've talked about David's most infamous sin, we're gonna t I want to talk a little bit about David as a father, and it flows into the next section of the story when we start seeing some of the judgments Nathan has proclaimed because of David's sin. We start seeing these judgments play out. Am Amnon, one of David's sons, forces himself on the sister of Absalom, another one of David's sons. Remember, a lot of wives, a lot of kids... Um, um, Absalom then basically, and David doesn't do anything about this. Okay. Um, so Absalom takes matters into his own hands and kills his half brother when he's drunk. So we see several things going on here. We see strife within the family, just as they talked about, as Nathan talked about what happened. And we see that David doesn't take a real active role in sorting out these issues and sin amongst his children. That's a theme we'll see pop up again. And it introduces us to Absalom. Absalom is renowned for his handsome appearance. And remember, this is after he killed his half-brother. He later stays in Jerusalem for two years without ever coming into David's presence. So David ignored the sin where two of one of his own sons forced himself on one of his sisters, and then he doesn't do anything about it when one of the other brothers kills him in retribution. David, as far as we can tell, does nothing. Um, well, it's, a it's, it's several steps to the story, but basically this sort of emboldens Absalom, and he, he leads an uprising against his father, attempts to make himself the king. And people are rallying to this. And David has to flee from Jerusalem. David, who was so secure, David, who had defeated so many of the enemies of Israel, is now on the run from one of his own children. Um, like I said, we, we see God's judgment here. And also, you might say, some parental failings. Absalom enters Jerusalem, his father's house, there are concubines that remain in the house, and Absalom sets up a tent on the roof of his father's house, and he takes each of the concubines to the tent and defiles them. These are his father's concubines. He's taken the house. He sets up a tent. It's a public thing. Everyone knows what's happening. This is a sign. David's out, and I'm the man now. You don't believe I'm the man? I have his concubines right here in, in view of you all. 
this is a terrible, shameful act, but it also fulfills what Nathan said would happen. And war ensues. Um, David's armies, um, under his three commanders, later defeat Absalom at the forest of Ephraim. Absalom, like I said, was renowned for his beauty, his long hair, beautiful long hair becomes entangled in the boughs of an oak tree. He's dragged off his mule and left hanging there. And David had David has a very light hand when it comes to dealing with his own children. That would be an understatement. But he's even told the commanders of his army to try to not harm Absalom. But Joab defies David's orders, and he and his armor bearers kill the king's son. Absalom, they kill him as he hangs there. It ends the rebellion, and the remaining Israelites who had fought with him flee to their homes. And David mourns for his dead son, but in a sort of startling display, I think, he's severely rebuked by, the, by his commander Joab. And why am I including this little section out of all the chapters we're flying through here? Well, it, this is in uh, 2 Samuel 19. Remember, the king's son has been killed, the king's son who rebelled against him. The commander of the army, Joab, killed him. The king covered, and I'm in, I'll start here reading in verse 4. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son, Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You today have covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and of your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and if all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore, go Excuse me. Therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord... If you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Wow. It Just setting aside the fact that it, it takes quite a bit of fortitude, to, even if you are the commander of the army, to speak to a king in that way is no small matter. But I think it also tells us a little bit about David, which of course is sort of the thread we're trying to follow through this. Um, what can we learn about David from those words? What aspects of his character are being highlighted there? I think it does tie in because Joab just speaks, speaks the truth to him and basically just, you know, says, this is, you know, we just saved you from your son. But if your son were here, you'd be, and if I were dead, you'd be happy right now. You know, why do you, why do you love those who hate you and hate those who love you? What do we learn about David from this? I think it's a shocking passage, really, in many ways. My thoughts are something along the lines of judgment. It speaks to David's judgment. It speaks to his skills, not as a king. We've seen that he can be a conquering general and he can drive away Israel's enemies, but ruling justly and ruling with wisdom 
is different, okay? And I think I'm fair in saying that we can think of David as a great conqueror. He was not a great administrator. The great administrator, the guy who's really good at running the kingdom, will be his son Solomon, who will be able to, I mean, Solomon who's famous for his righteous judgments, for amassing wealth, for his great wisdom. David's great at, at you know, driving away Israel's enemies, but he has a real blind spot when it comes to this sort of um, how to deal with his own children and how to um, give, you know, give justice where it's due. Um, so I don't think he is a great administrator. I think he's a great conqueror, but not a great administrator. And I just, and you, and you can read through that again if you want to, but it's just shocking what Joab says right to David's face um, after this rebellion was thwarted. Also, some of you might be thinking in the back of your minds, remember from 1 Kings 1, chapter 1 through 5, where um, another of David's sons sets himself up as king. And I'll flip to that really quickly here and read it for you, just because it's a passage I think that's come up in at least one sermon lately. This is in 1 Kings 1, 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, ex exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father, David, had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? So we see that David, dealing with the kids, keeping his, his, his progeny in check, doesn't do a great job. It, it, it is a, it is a, um, a weakness of his. Um, and I just think it shows that he sometimes had trouble... Um, with judging people and rendering righteous judgments um, and giving and, and, and running the kingdom. And as one last little bit here, we'll speed through this, but it's a good story to know. Um, back when David had to leave Jerusalem because of the fear of Absalom, he was met beyond the, just beyond the Mount of Olives by um, someone, a servant named Ziba, who was a servant of Mephibosheth. Remember Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, who David had treated kindly? And Ziba lies to David, and he tells him that his master, who is the grandson of Saul, is now hoping to see the old kingdom restored. He lies. He goes to David. He's like, oh, king, remember my servant, who you, my master, who you treated so well? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's out on you, and when the new guy's here, we're going to restore the old line, and that's going to be best. And David, perhaps not surprisingly, tells him, well, now all that Mephibosheth has belongs to you, the servant Ziba. Okay, well, we say that David was in a hurry. It was a stressful time. Okay, we'll give him that. But further on in 2 Samuel 19, David later returns to Israel. This is after the rebellion's been put down. So we assume he has more time. And Mephibosheth, not surprisingly, approaches David and be like, hey, you gave everything I have to my servant. He lied to you, you know. He tricked you. He's, I've, you know, I'm, I have not been unfaithful to you. You know, you're the king. Can, you know, can you make this right? Um, so it's very interesting, and I'll read to you really quickly here at the end. 2 Samuel 19, <clears throat> and the king said, and this is in verse 29, and the king answering Mephibosheth, the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. 
So, so we see, and, and like I said, if we're generous to David and say the first decision was made in a hurry, again, it's a picture of David not being the greatest administrator in the world. Because what has Ziba just accomplished? He stole half of his master's stuff. He got all of it to begin with because he lied. And then when his master goes to the king and asks for justice, the king's like, oh, I don't, let's not talk anymore about your affairs. You get half of it. So the servant gets half of his master's stuff because David was not a great judge in some ways, not a great, like, not a great administrator. Again, we think about Solomon, the wise Solomon, the, the, the guy who really could run the kingdom. David was not that guy. Um, and that's really, like I said, we, we are going to see the rise of Solomon next week. But I saved just a couple minutes here at the end. I just kind of want you guys to reflect on that. David as a, David as a military leader, David as an administrator, um, the good and bad of David, and just, and just think on that. He's one of the biggest characters in the Old Testament, and we have so much information on him. I've had to speed through parts of it, but what do you guys, do you guys have any final thoughts about David or about some of the stuff we've gone through, questions? Because again, I had to trim a lot out this week, so. Any thoughts? Oh, great. Well, it occurs to me as I, as I listen to you talk about how poorly David administered and especially how he dealt with his children, one of the aspects of that was how many wives he had. So how many children did he have? That's true. I mean, you and I have two or three uh, currently. Um, I mean, I, I know I don't know. I'm not going to have any more. You might. Uh, God willing. You know, people, people can deal with, you know, a, a few children and, and deal properly with them. But if you have 10 or 20 wives and, and then concubines besides, you may have 50, yeah. 100 kids uh, yeah. easily. Right. And you don't even know their names. Uh, I think it's perfectly reasonable to expect that the king did not know all of his own kids' names. I mean, that, that may, be, it may have so, been true. He, so he's certainly not spending time with them and mm -hmm. and and uh raising them up properly yeah so i mean it's it appears he doesn't even know how to do that mm -hmm. uh but we we clearly see that that he didn't deal with his children properly and and they took matters in their own hands and not surprisingly uh, true and interesting some of you may have made the connection back remember when i said it was okay for israel to have a king because moses left them instructions for what a king was supposed to do one of the things they weren't supposed to do is take a whole bunch of wives. So we're already breaking that, and, and we're gonna see, and it gets worse. But again, that that was one of the imperatives that Moses had given was that kings not amass a huge harem of women around them. Well, the moral of the story, you know, not don't have a whole bunch of wives. Yeah, yeah. If you learned anything today, yeah, how? <laughs> yeah, that I I just wanted to follow up on what Greg said. Uh, you know the. The, the common theme here is throughout this whole story is it's always the woman's fault. I mean, I, no, maybe that's not what he said. Now that, that's sorry. That, that, that's okay. We can take that I, off I, the recording. <laughs> but no, the, uh, you know, talking about Adonijah, um, you know, there's a verse in there that says, he said, and, and David never questioned him once from the time he was right. a little kid until he was grown. Yeah. Why did you do this? In other words, he gave him no no instruction. He gave him no discipline. Yeah, yeah he got to do um, whatever he wanted. Yeah. Just do whatever he want. Well, you know, whether he really even knew his son or didn't know his son, 
you're right. You start to see a pattern of, of a, a guy that was, and maybe, you know, talking about guilt, maybe because of his own past and the guilt that he had over, um, killing Uriah and some of those things, maybe that, you know, who knows, but, uh, just I, some interesting I hadn't thought things. about that, but yeah, it could have been some of his dereliction of his duties yeah. as, as a parent might've had to do with guilt possibly. Yeah. But obviously, um, as, uh, as he was told, uh, by the prophet, Hey, the sword's never going to depart from your house. And he had problems continually. Yeah. And it, it shows a, a, a man in a bit of a disarray, mm. um, at the same time, it's, uh, as Greg said too, it's, you know, it's encouraging and it's discouraging, um, for us as we look at the life of David. Yeah. It's a good thought. Like you said, uh, we're all going to have sin that we struggle with in our own life and, and we all want to see it since none of us, you know, here on this earth can be perfect. We want to see our, the story of our sin end more like David and not like Saul. We want to overcome it and be forgiven and still have a heart after God and not be consumed by it and ruined and become utterly depraved so any other thoughts on david i know it's a lot guys i went through a lot this week but it's it's, it's a big character and i know but i've tried to do justice to the study of the man but also the narrative of, of his life and we'll see that come to an end next week and then we'll see his son solomon very different man with different talents as we talked about so last thoughts yes mason uh, i actually had a question yes a thought. i'll try and answer um, it when we went over David having the Amalekite man killed for claiming Saul's death, yes. is it clear whether David could see past the man's lie or just on the basis that he killed one of the Lord's anointed king, or was it perhaps both that, of those things? That's a good question, and reading through that um, reading through that section and reading through the other, I'm not, I'm not dogmatic either way. I, it seems, as on like first flush for me, just reading through it, that at the time, at least at that moment, David may have, because he takes him at his, at his word. Now, he may have found out differently later because that's not what happened, right? Um, but at that moment, he basically said, your blood's on your own head. This is your testimony. I'm taking your testimony. And if you have told the truth, the man's like, yes. And he's like, then execute him. It's a little different the second time when the two captains bring the head because they're bringing physical proof of what they've done with them. So that's a little different, but it's still um, a part of the royal lineage. So I, I don't know, but it does, it seemed a little bit to me like it was likely David may not have known, or at least not known at that time. Um, but I, I don't know. It's a good question. Um, but like I said, the second time, second incident that's sort of related is a little different because there was actual physical proof that they did exactly what they said they did. They were just hoping he'd like it and he didn't.